Uh, I am currently wearing a t-shirt that says Eskrima on it. Um, how many of us have a sneaky tap out or under armor or, or a, a jiu-jitsu t-shirt or, or something that we wear? Um, we wear uniforms when we train, we wear certain types of clothing. Dr. Peter Katz has, some, has researched these aspects of martial arts culture and he has some very strong arguments about the status of such clothing. Peter, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, thanks. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm good. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this because we met um, last year at the conference yeah. in California and I listened to your paper which was all about martial arts and clothing uh, all the way from Bartitsu in the 19th century through to hoodies and tap out clothing and all that branding that we have today. So uh, where should we begin? At Let's begin with what is your argument about this kind of outside of the dojo clothing, the stuff that we might choose to wear on a daily basis? Yeah, my, uh, the core of my argument sort of rests on the sort of thing that I claim about everything when it comes to literature and culture, that it really has a lot less to do with semiotics and more to do with uh, affect or like a really short definition of that is how my body encounters other bodies. Um, so wearing an Eskrima shirt, um, sorry for the dog, I guess. That's okay. Not my dog. Um, <laughs> it's not too loud. Just, yeah, it's not too loud. Okay. Let's just go. Let's just go. Wearing an Eskrima shirt, uh, the semiotics of it says like, I know what Eskrima is possibly, although we like everybody knows someone who has a tattoo on their arm of something in Japanese or Chinese that doesn't read Japanese or Chinese, so who knows, yeah. right? Um, but but more importantly, uh, I think it sort of shapes your body uh, that it announces to yourself, most importantly, like I am a person who can hit you with a stick uh, in ways that you cannot think about. Um, and so that, that changes the way that you carry your body, um, consciously or unconsciously. So the, so the first stage when you when you buy your, you start your new martial art or you really love the UFC and you buy the, the clothing, is yeah. that it, it's a message to you about you so you, you feel something when you put it on. It, it, it's, an, it's affective rather than signifying. It's about like an emotion. It's gonna have an effect on your body, on your, on your feeling and your thinking and your interacting. Yeah, and even the motive for that. Uh, so affect like comes, straight out of uh, Sylvan Tompkins, and he says affects are motivators. So the motivation for buying your, um, your like black belt gear the moment you get your black belt is not to like tell everyone you have a black belt, but because you're really excited, right? It's that joy about like, I am yeah. a black belt now, I can wear this thing that says black belt. Yeah. So I mean, so I, um, I've studied lots of different martial arts at different times of my life. And I, I think I have always had at least one item of clothing that, mm. that, I've, that I've worn for the, the feeling that it gives me. But also I think because I know that it sends out a semiotic message, I know that it says something to other people about me. Mm. I know that I, I, I want that to be said. So even when I was a teenager, I, wear, I used to lift a lot of weights and I used to wear world gym clothing i really i mean i wanted to wear gold gym stuff but it was i think arnold schwarzenegger trained at world gym or something something like that yeah. there's a reason why i couldn't even though like california was the furthest place away in the whole world you know mm -hmm. but i still had to wear 
that. And then I did Taekwondo at university and I used to proudly wear Leeds University Taekwondo club. Um, and I, I think from, I, I like your argument about the feeling, but I think the semiotic aspect of it, like sending a message, making a statement, you're putting mm. up a flag, aren't you? And say, saying, this is me. The, the, you know, I, it might be watch out. It might be watch out. I, I'm, I'm tough or something, but it's, yeah. it's something that you're proud of and excited by, but you want to send the message out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would say, um, as with any academic argument, it's really fun to be like, no, it's entirely affect. There's no semiotics, so that we get pushed back, right? But, it, but in reality, it's probably a dialectic between those two, um, and it probably varies from person to person. I know I'm somebody who, who really sort of like thinks with their body, right? I, I move affect first, and then I'm like, what's the message I'm sending? Which is sometimes great, and sometimes gets me into trouble. Uh, but but even as even if your initial motivation, um, like it's really interesting to hear you say you had like this particular gym you wanted to announce to people like I am, I affiliate myself here, um, so that like that's that's pure semiotics, right? But then it's also deeply tied to like you want to show off your your muscles and you want to think about that for yourself and for other people who will read like Gold's Gym on your shirt and then immediately like check you out, right? Because when I see somebody wearing a a shirt that says whatever their martial art is, I'm immediately sort of like, do you carry yourself like someone I think would do that martial art? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, um, when we were when we were talking uh, after your after your paper in um, in uh, in Orange last year in, in the conference, um, I, I I thought, yeah, if I see someone wearing a tap out, I mean, tap out is incredibly popular in the UK, and then a lot of a lot of martial artists, but not just martial artists, seem to wear the Under Armour gear as well. Um, yeah. But I, that's I think that's a little bit more generic. That's a bit more like I'm a really active physical person rather than necessarily martial arts. But um, you know, as so I said to you, when I see someone wearing tap out gear, I tend to think that they might be likely to attack me with like, they might go for a double leg takedown or something right. rather than yeah, yeah. to punch me. I mean, so it, it changes the way that we read people, doesn't it? We, we might judge them. I noticed that I, I don't own, even though my, probably my main martial art, that if it's a martial art, the thing I've practiced longest and most often in every day of my life, just about, is Tai Chi. But I hmm. don't have any Tai Chi clothing. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I do. I have Tai Chi uniforms that people have given me, okay. and stuff, but I won't wear them. I won't wear them because it sends out, it, semiotically, it says, look at me, I'm a white British guy wearing like, <laughs> you know, wearing silk pajamas or something. Right, I, right. Just won't, I just won't, um, won't do that. Yeah. Because for me, it's, there, there is the effective, but there's also the semiotic. What about, I mean, what about uniforms themselves? What do you think about the wearing of a uniform in a martial arts lesson. So I'm interested in your sense, like you won't wear your Tai Chi uniform because it's just a white British dude wearing silk pajamas, right? And um, I think I said in, in the paper or around my paper presentation, like nobody in any dojo or dojang or, or school where I have trained and said this has, has received it well, but I've always been like, isn't this all just a little bit cosplay? Right, like mm. there, there are certainly practical elements to the uniform. We'll talk about like how that affects your body as well too. But like a significant part of um, Aikido especially is like, let's all wear hakama and uh, speak in our terribly accented Japanese to each other and bow and it's all kind of cosplay, which is great. And not to, I think people respond really 
hostily to that because it suggests and therefore fake or therefore not useful. But I think it's also, I, I quite like the Aikido culture and the fact that when you come in there, no matter who you are, it's, there's that kind of like, we're gonna, we're gonna act calmly and pretend like we're sort of pseudo samurai. And there are certainly mm. some colonial implications there, but at least everyone's being nice. Mm. Um, have you uh, have you ever tried practicing? Because I know you you do a lot of different martial arts, right? And I I practice several others. Also, have you ever tried doing one kind of martial art in the uniform of another martial art? Yeah, and it it, it yeah. yes, I have, I have, um, uh, and it's an interesting situation. I think sometimes if there is cross dressing involved, which there is, I mean, I've thought a lot about the cross dressing dimension as yeah. well. I mean, you know, it, it it's interesting to recast cultural appropriation arguments, you know, in, especially in America, in North America, in the US, the yeah. cultural appropriation things, that seems to be the hotbed, that's the center of culture. And it seems like you have to be really careful about what you wear or what you, or, or the affectation you pick up from another culture. Yeah. It seems close to apartheid sometimes viewing it from over here. It's like, wow, you really can't do that if you're white because it's yeah. cultural and it, it's like, really? Um, Whereas in Britain, people sort of don't seem to care about it. It's a differently organized kind of field. But in a, in, a, in a martial art, like as you say, you walk in and you put on your Japanese-esque clothes or your Chinese-esque clothes. Mm. And I have sometimes, I, I've, I've been down kickboxing. I, you know, sometimes would, when I've got to kickboxing, I'll wear my no-gi Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff. And, and it, it's great. because it, it, And I've noticed that it, it scares people because they go, shit. So you can pick and punch and, you know, they don't know that I'm absolutely terrible. Like I'm a little right, baby right. crawling around when it comes to, to uh, jujitsu. But yeah, I do often, I do often kind of cross-dress in that sense. Yeah. Do Tai Chi in a, in a jujitsu t-shirt or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Why do you ask? Um, I, I really like that semiotic dimension of it, that people are reading, oh, he's wearing, he's wearing Brazilian jiu-jitsu uniform. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Because for, for me, um, my primary martial art is American Kempo or, or Parker Kempo. Uh, and I really specifically don't call it Kempo Karate, which was, uh, here's your like, Kempo history lesson, if you don't know. Um, yeah. That was a sort of like marketing move that he made much later, Ed, Ed Parker made much later in the, the system. Um, and it had a lot to just do with the sort of popularity of karate. You would say Kempo, people would say, I have no idea what that is. And you would say karate and they'd be like, oh yeah, karate kid, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was all advertising and really like its roots, um, especially sort of midway through its development are in Kung Fu. He worked with a lot of people in San Francisco. Um, his instructor was also Chinese. So, um, so the system itself then sort of starts very Japanese. He trains with uh, James Matosi. So the system itself begins Japanese kind of hard style, linear movements, um, a lot of powerful, but not, um, you know, one body mechanic per strike uh, mm -hmm. is how I think of it. Japanese. So Shotokan-esque, which is another thing I, I practice. But then the later forms are much more fluid, much more how I think of Kung Fu soft style kind of motions. Mm -hmm. So when I want to practice, um, say an earlier form in the system that feels more Japanese. If I'm wearing my, my white gi that I wear for a Shotokan, I feel like I do it much more Japanese hard style. And if I wear my black gi, which is very Kempo for my Shotokan forms, I feel myself doing Kempo things. Now, 
some of that is probably intentional, but I also have this like really rooted in my body sense that like once I'm wearing a certain kind of uniform, it's like time to be in that body mode, mm. right? Mm. Um, so there's like the psychological dimension of you wouldn't go, you wouldn't go lift weights in your suit that you teach in maybe, um, right? Um, and part of that is physical, which we'll talk about in a second, but part of that's also just psychological, right? We don't, you want to get in the, in the weightlifting mode, right? You want to get in the exercise mode. So you want to get in the hard style Shotokan mode. You put on your clean white gi with no patches and uh, you want to get in your Kenpo Kung Fu mode. You put on your black gi or mm-hmm. even your, your sort of more Tai Chi-esque style uniform. Yeah, I've, I've noticed, I noticed that when, um, so when I used to go um, to Eskrima classes, the classes were at an incredibly inconvenient time. They almost like they deliberately put them at the worst possible time, like Sunday evening. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and like Thursday evening, which was marginally better, but so late, like it finished when you wanted to be in bed and never mind, right. come home and have a shower. And uh, anyway, so it was very difficult to motivate yourself to go, especially in summer when it's a Sunday afternoon to go training. Yeah. But I used to, I found that I would go down, I used to keep all my gear, I still do keep all my gear in the shed, mm-hmm. sticks and gloves. And obviously you're in a huge kit bag and it all really stinks because you never wash it. Yeah, I know. And and going down the shed and I'd look at it, (laughs) I'd look at it and I'd like pick up the sticks and and smell, like smell the gloves. And then you kind of go, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, I do. So there was, there's a ritualistic, but also there was a bodily response. Like my body's going, you go in training now and you like it. And you're like, Yeah, it's 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 a very physical kind of response when you you encounter the smells and the feeling of, of certain materials, right? Yeah, uh, and that's the thing. Yeah, you know, I think affect theory uh, has a lot of different branches off of it, and there's the sort of like Deleuze versus Tompkins split. Okay. And for me, the the key difference between those is that Deleuze is very philosophical. So if you read somebody who's talking about affect in beautiful language that makes all of the sense while you're reading it. And then when you're done, you're like, but what does that actually mean? That's a sort of Deleuzean affect and I can definitely go there. But what I really like about Tompkins is that he says like, no, this is, we're talking biology, physiology. When you're smelling, it's not just like an idea, right? It's yeah. physiological, chemical, neurochemical, endocrinological changes in your body yeah. uh, that, that create that kind of feeling. Mm. Um, so I think that that's really interesting that the smell does it for you too. Cause I remember um, I was teaching 30, 40 hours a week when I was in high school at my Kenpo dojo. And then I went away to college and came back and I walked in the dojo and smelled. And first of all, I was like, Oh, it really smells in here. Right. I'd gotten to the, <laughs> to the point where I had no idea what that smell was, but it, then immediately my body was like, and that smells like training. It smells like home. Yeah. Let's do this. Also, we really should clean this place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, f- a friend of mine um, is a, a, a used to do a lot of mountain climbing, not the mountain climbing, bouldering where they just go round problems and stuff. Yeah. And then when he used to talk, if you talked about it, his sort of the ends of his fingers would start to sweat. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> he was like almost like salivating from his hands yeah. were almost like turning to yeah. Spider Man, like ready to climb. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. It's like, oh. Uh, but, That's a- yeah. That's really fascinating. <laughs> and to think about what, what's happening in terms of parasympathetic and sympathetic responses there, right? You're saying bouldering, his body goes, all right, let's go. Like, let's yeah. get, um, we did this experiment in, you know, your standard high school 
anatomy physiology class where we took our heart rate and then exercise and took our heart rate, et cetera. And mm-hmm. um, instead of running around the track, I did uh, kata and my heart rate jumped immediately to like, I forget what the number was, one, mm-hmm. 160, 170, stayed there. And as soon as I finished, kind of dropped back off. And that, that, that sounds like finger sweat, right? Like my body was like, okay, it's kata time. Like we know exactly what we need physiologically for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the other thing, I, I don't know if you've looked into, if you're talking about going into these things on a kind of a biological, physical, material, um, organic level. I mean, what, what do, do mirror neurons factor in your, in your research? Because, you know, that, that when they say mirror neurons are so essential to like, to being human, to being able to identify with something else and go, yeah. that's like me. That, so you watch a film. And, and they say that mirror neurons are, are really involved in the process of, of like you caring about the hero or you caring about. Yeah. So like when you're watching an action sequence or when like if I'm watching a fight in a film, it's like, it's like ugh, my body's like, oh, well, we're fighting now. And it, it's, to, it's to do with, well, apparently, I mean, I, I don't do this research of this. I mean, do, do you yeah. get anywhere near that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, that's actually like where my research on, on literature tends to begin um and that that's complicated when we're talking about literature and empathy i think it's there but it's a lot harder to prove because we're jumping from f5 region which is more about sort of like and we're talking again capuchin monkeys talking about like grasping motions and then we translate that to like well it's very close to Broca's region and it's related to and like birds seem to have one that's related to language so we can then like jump from grasping to language which lets us jump to empathy but if we're talking martial arts mm-hmm. like that kind of grasping motion i think is is much more readily proven right that uh when you see something your your body mirrors it inside and there's just like and again i'm not a neuroscientist but there's just a very small portion of the energy uh of your of your brain dedicated to the, the like not me part mm-hmm. um and it's very small right and, and so like to the point that there are some people who have a disorder where they struggle to kind of differentiate between um things other bodies are doing in their own body but i think you know in the in the time of coronavirus i have watched so many martial arts seminars and videos on youtube um highly recommend hd key i don't know if we have to pay for it or they should pay us for the advertising but um they've been doing um online seminars and they post them up on youtube and there's definitely something about kind of watching a body do a thing and then you feel that back in your body and i think that can begin even with clothing right if i'm going to practice in my house like you were saying getting the escrima sticks at sunday night like it's really easy as i think we've all learned when you have infinite time to just not do anything Um, but but if i go get on my my shotokan uniform i feel like okay now i want to see another body like resonate with this so i bring up hg and there's uh hmm. you know um now immediately just blanking on all of the sensei's names right <laughs> <laughs> See, i mean speaking of effective responses yeah. to things i mean since since the coronavirus lockdown i have kind of I've, although all the things went online free, you know, like yeah. all the all the Gracie Barra stuff that I'm a member of, that mm-hmm. all went online for free. There were people sharing a screamer, Kali. There was people. There's there's Tai Chi galore online now. I kind of just couldn't deal with it 
like looking yeah. at it would made me feel too sad. It made mm. me feel like I, I, I was reaching, uh, it was, it was like, um, bereavement and yeah. it was, and I still, and I get emails telling me there's a new episode of this thing that I subscribe to along. And I just don't look at any of anyone. I guess that's, it's not really a semiotic response. It's an effective response to me. It's like yeah. a kind of mourning because I genuinely don't know when I'll get back to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I still practice Tai Chi, but for me, Tai yeah. Chi is something that I need to do, like having a shower. Like, I, you know, if you go a day or two without a shower, you, you, you want that more yeah. than anything. Um, yeah. So I, it's a funny thing because it's it it's it. I get filled with immense sadness when I think about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So that's yeah. an effective response, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And and really interesting. I mean, there are a lot of other factors with you individually there, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like Aikido, is I think not a martial art you can practice a lot by yourself, right? Yeah, no, not really. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I tried you try to practice an Aikido technique and you sort of like spin around for a little bit and then you're like, I guess I, <laughs> I guess I threw it. doesn't feel right um, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're, if you're thinking even like trying to make links between something like mirror neurons and empathy and bodies, like I remain skeptical and I think we're all sort of living an experiment right now about like whether like you and I are connecting right now, but also it's not like when we were standing in person. Right. Um, some of that psychological, some of that I have to say is physiological, right? I can't smell you right now. Um, even if, even if you don't have like an odor, right? There are, there's stuff between us. Um, so, so for a martial art like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, you know, just watching someone do that is probably, is certainly not the same. Um, and yeah, that kind of mourning is definitely a physiological response. A, a bunch of the high ranking black belts in, uh, my instructor's school, we did a couple like seminars together uh, and nobody really seemed to be into the actual Kempo part. We all just kind of wanted to see each other and yeah. then we would all just kind of be sad, right? Like yeah, yeah. someone would get up and demonstrate a technique, we half half or 75% of the people would just kind of sit there and watch them and we'd all sort of be like, yeah, that, that seems like a fun thing we could do when we were actually together. So let's talk a little bit more about clothing then, because because yeah. a lot of your research is about clothing, and and you've researched all the way back to clothing and bartitsu mm -hmm. and, and contemporary clothing, um, and I guess I mean one of the things that's relatively well known about bartitsu, if people have read sort of uh, like Emmeline Godfrey's work on bartitsu, yeah. which I would imagine many people have, is that it was a very much a Victorian genteel response to to fears about crime or about yeah. colonial um, colonial crime or working class crime or or, or, or or immigrant crime like in Irish in London or what, whatever and that a large part of it involved not just fighting like a ruffian but fighting like a gentleman say or mm -hmm. then subsequently mm -hmm. I guess maybe like a lady um, and you have connected clothing with that. What have you, what have you, what's your argument about Victorian bartitsu and, um, and clothing? There's a, a really interesting dialectic within bartitsu, and I think it has to do much like with Ed Parker, with like Barton Wright trying to sell it. Um, so, so there's this semiotic element of it where he's sort of intentionally making choices and then there's an affective component as well. So the, the semiotic component of it is um, trying to sort of sell the authenticity. It's, it's Japanese, Japanese them. Um, mm. So 
in his earlier articles, uh, especially I believe in his first one, he's got pictures of himself training with someone in Japan and they're both wearing their gi. I think his instructor's also wearing a hakama. Um, and uh, to me, that really signals like a, a semiotic choice to say like, hey, here's this, this non-British thing. Um, I have access to this particular knowledge that you do not have. Uh, but then the second article in Pearson's uh, is all in sort of upper middle, middle Victorian uh, outfits, which also seems like a semiotic choice that says this is not, uh, not only is this uh, foreign knowledge that I have access to that's something that's special, but it's also not uh, just for the theater. Um, I hadn't... Uh, hadn't noticed and maybe there's some work to be done here whether he dresses the his opponents as sort of ruffians or in more particularly irish clothing or anything it didn't nothing jumped out to me but there's something to to be said there as well but i think the affect uh component of it that i got really interested in is the way that it changes that standard upper middle class suit um into a martial arts uniform right where we were just talking about how like i uh you know, there's, there's every once in a while, maybe not for you, uh, I'm a little bit scatterbrained, I would show up to teach Kempo at the university and be wearing like, I, oh shit, I forgot, oh, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh shoot, I forgot my, uh, my gi pants. So now I'm just gonna wear like my, my gi jacket and then my like suit pants or vice versa. Um, and that always felt really awful, not just physically because you know, it's not fitted the same way, but also just sort of psychologically. But if all we did was train in our suits, then like any moment I'm also wearing my martial arts uniform, right? I can start telling you about Charles Dickens. And then if a, an Irish ruffian breaks into the classroom, I could also fight him because I'm ready to go. Mm. That's so, yeah. yeah. No, no, well, I, I just think I, I was, when I, um, I went, I was invited to Japan a while ago and I was shown around by um, Mike Molaski, who, uh, and he'd lay, he laid on a, a tour for me and he took me around all of these different styles of martial arts clubs, all these people who I didn't get their names or I did get their names where it didn't go in. And this one guy was amazing. He wouldn't let me take a photograph of him. He wouldn't let me film anything. Couldn't really mm. speak English, but it was, we had a three-way conversation. Yeah. And he has studied the, the history of different uh, styles of swords, uh, swordsmanship. And, and he, he, he argued that the further you go back historically, the, um, the more that Chinese and Japanese styles look the same, Hmm. The real shift is to do with changes in the clothing worn by Japanese um, sword people so that yeah. so they could no longer, they wouldn't be bending at the waist as much. So, you know, the classical kind of Chinese position where they might be leaning forward right. and, 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 yeah. and one hand comes up, one hand. You stop seeing that because they couldn't lean because of the nature of the belts and, and, and the waistlines of their and it, so at that point and these, these codes of movement and codes of behavior where it's just undignified to bend forward. So you, you just stay vertical and you're yeah. wearing clothes that don't allow you to. So I'm thinking if we connect that, I mean, interested to hear what you think about that, but also yeah, if yeah. We connect that back to let's go and do Kempo in our in our in a suit that we would mm -hmm. wear to commute urban teach yeah, yeah. Middle class stuff. I mean, that's going to change the Kempo because you can't move in the same way without destroying your clothing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So, so Aikido is what got to, to start with where you, you began. Aikido is what got me started thinking about this because you wear that um, kushta in your hakama that basically prevents you from bending over comfortably or from leaning back comfortably. And so one reason why all the black belts have great postures, of course, that they're all amazing martial artists. But the other reason is that they have a piece of wood shoved up their butt, basically. So, um, so yeah, you, I don't think you could throw someone and then grapple them, right? Uh, in the same way that you have to end with that sort of very upright posture, controlling from standing because you've got this piece of wood that prevents you from bending. So that's such a fascinating argument about the divergence between Chinese and Japanese. Yeah, I'll, I'll look into that. I'll find out the, the I'll, find, I'll ask Mike Malaski who that, who that guy was. He was great, he was a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, the other thing, but, I mean, I, I once um, studied, the, I downloaded a load, hang on. I don't want to say anything illegal. No, let's just say I had access to some um, an online course, uh, and now I'm not going to name the martial art that because <laughs> this is I had access to an, an, uh, a self defense course that I'm not going to name, and they insisted that you always train in the clothes that you wear on a day to day basis. Yeah. So I tried to do that. And what happened was I ended up with very few of the clothes that I, because <laughs> like, you, you know, you go down on your knees, you're up, you grapple with someone. It's just, it just destroys your clothes. So Absolutely. it either means you have to change the clothes that you wear on a day-to-day basis, or you, you, you just can't, you can't do that. Yeah. And this is, this is, I think like, now we're back to the crux of my argument um, that like, uh you know they would occasionally do days in the park uh in kempo and they he would say like where where would you usually wear um i love head kicks i have a black belt in taekwondo as well I'll stand up for a second but like i'm also a hipster i wear super tight pants i i could not kick anyone in the head with these pants right i would have to i've always said my first self-defense move is just going to be to pull my pants off uh, so that i can <laughs> if they still want to fight that's after all that, you need that's all I you think need so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so and so if that is the case i like you just said but i'm going to sort of just present it slightly differently i have to either decide do i do kempo and taekwondo for self-defense mm-hmm. or do i do it for other reasons and if i do it for self-defense i've got to change how i practice it and change what i do because of what i wear all the time right all of my suits are also i get them all from express i always look like I can barely move because my clothes are so tight. Um, and so if it's really about self-defense, I need to learn how to do five swords in an outfit that's like trying to show off as much of my pecs and arms as I possibly can, right? Um, and if it's not the case, if I say, no, I don't want to destroy all of my clothing, um, and no, I feel like it restricts my movement and I don't like practicing it, then then I need to admit to myself that at least part of my practice is yeah. the joy of movement right or is the yeah. joy of that community and moving in that community yeah. uh, and not just and now we're back to Bartitsu, not just knowing that like at any moment you might be attacked to quote uh, the the Bartitsu manual right yeah um, yeah see i won't i won't buy clothes that i can't move properly shirts mm-hmm. okay like yeah it, because there's compromises there, but uh, yeah. but I will not buy trousers, jeans, anything like that unless I can. And and my wife's always like, you know, I, I try something on, then I come out the change room, I'm lifting my leg up, and she's going, but yeah. you don't need to do that. But I, but my response is, but my body can do that. What happens if I want to run up three or four stairs at a time? 
Yeah. I will not wear trousers that do not allow me to move my legs to the extent that my legs want to move on a day-to-day basis. And also, yeah. I mean, there are some trousers that, that meet that criterion, but in the morning, if I think I might do Tai Chi today where I don't need to wear specific clothing, I won't wear those if I, because for Tai Chi, mm. there are some long poses and low poses. There are some stretches. There are some kicks. So even if I'm wearing relatively tight, if I have relatively tight trousers, I, oh, I, just, I just don't want to do Tai Chi in them. I, I want the free, I don't want to wear flowing silk pajamas. I sure. Really do, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all the, it's interesting the way that yeah. the clothes really, there's a huge influence that we just don't talk about. We just, yeah. inside and outside of training hall, the, the clothes, are, are working to, to on our what we can do what we want to do what we feel we can't do it's amazing isn't it yeah yeah and i, I love that but my body can do that that's such a good response and that that's deleuze who says like affect is about what a body can do yeah. and and yeah my my body um i had the the joy of doing a, a summer class in london um last summer and it was three weeks of no martial arts, except the one time we went to the Bartitsu school in a small city whose name I cannot remember. And now I want, I wanted to like just, give them a shout out. That doesn't matter. There are a few, there are a few in yeah, North and South. Yeah. Um, but like my body can do things that it wasn't doing for like a month and I was losing my mind. And I thought nobody was looking at me from my group, at least it's London, everyone's always looking at you. And so I just front kicked a, uh, we were on the on the escalator going down into the tube and there was something over my head so I just kicked up and hit it and everyone sort of looking around at me and I was like it's a thing my body can do I'm not trying to show off my body is just like your foot has been below your waist for like four weeks what are you going to do too long it's been too yeah, long yeah, yeah that's a that is a funny thing skill acquisition and skill loss um and I because I, I've you know I, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop doing Tai Chi because it, I would, I would feel so angry at myself if I forgot the form. Mm-hmm. Um, I've thrown a lot of stuff away. Like there's a lot of stuff that I can't do anymore. I used to love all the Taekwondo and the high kicking and I still, I still can kick high, but, but yeah, I mean, skill acquisition and skill loss. It's a different, it's a different type of conversation. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to, I was also going to say that I like, kind of the last thing I was thinking about before I, I had to like really deep dive into my uh, Charles Dickens etc manuscript but I want to come back eventually is that kind of communal belonging element you were talking about jujitsu and um, that sort of bereavement um, and then something that you just said and couldn't tell you what triggered um, the sense that like I don't think even as we're talking about like practicing one martial art in another martial arts uniform I'll speak for myself at least. I would not show up to my Aikido dojo in my black Kenpogi okay, um, okay. because of the kind of communal belonging aspect, right? It would, it would be saying you could, you could show up and have to wear your buttoned up shirt because you forgot your gi top, but to show up in like, and have deliberately brought the black uniform, which you don't wear in Aikido to a different mm-hmm. martial art would, would to me be saying like, I am, it sort of separates you from that community. So there's something about, and I think that's like the 
um, the best example I can think of of that dialectic between semiotics and affect that says like it's sending a message that says I don't care about your dress rules or I don't want to belong that, to that uniformity that is brought around by the uniform. But it's also affective that says like my body doesn't belong with your bodies or it belongs differently or it stands out. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, th I, I see that. I wouldn't turn up to a Brazilian. Well, yeah, so so like I was trained in in a Gracie bar, so I had my in, in a, mm -hmm. a Gracie bar gi. Looks like a racing car. It's so branded. It's just literally yeah, yeah. stamps all over it, and it's like. And I used to think they were so ugly until I started, and I'm so proud sure. to be putting this gi on. But if but in jiu-jitsu, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you can train in any gym, anywhere, any any mm -hmm. club, anywhere. And I used to train in in clubs that weren't Gracie. And I would never wear that because it's it it's just like I don't know it's just like it's asking for trouble. So yeah, I would yeah. wear I would wear an innocuous unbranded judo gi mm -hmm. uh, or or no gi, but I wouldn't have the Gracie thing on uh, definitely yeah. because yes, yeah, some contexts are really determined the the, the the structure of the uniform or the power of the uniform is. Um, is significant isn't it and so other ones though less so i think it really depends on the martial art too right i'm thinking aikido i wouldn't show it because aikido is so regimented and careful in its practices whereas i think you could show up to you know you could you could show up to a kempo dojo in a brazilian jiu-jitsu gi that said gracie and people would be like if you can hit that's fine you know um yeah. but but then there's sorry go ahead no no i just was I shouldn't have said that. I just said interesting. So, <laughs> oh, okay. um, and, and if I I like to try to grab something that I feel like people can get a little more easily in their body before you then go to something more maybe weird like could you wear the wrong gi? When I go train in a martial arts uh, in a martial art that I don't have rank in, I always wear my white belt, right? Because that's yeah, it seems polite, and so it, that to me is uh, of the same kind, right? Um, you don't show up in your ratty old black belt in the martial art you've never done before because you're not saying like, uh, trust me, I've already known, I already know this. Um, in the same way that you don't show up to a school in the Gracie uniform if it's not Gracie, right? Exactly, yeah. So I, I guess um, I haven't asked about the connection between your interest in, in literature and the novel and, um, and publishing and... Uh, and clothing, and then the affective dimensions of that. I mean, how, how, tell us about what you do when you study literature, yeah. thinking about clothing and thinking about affect and, and so on. How does that work? So the, the last chapter of my um, manuscript is about uh, like relatively not read novelist named Walter Besant, who is quite popular as a philosopher and social thinker. Um, so he writes this novel about, uh, it's called Children of Gibeon, about a wealthy heiress who goes, she finds out, you know, it's Victorian, so I could describe the plot to you, but it would take 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, she finds out that she's actually working class, plot twist, she's not, she's twins with some, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so, so she goes to live um, with these seamstresses and she wants to help them because she's a good Victorian. and my argument about that book is that like part of her journey is to learn that she can't help them if she's not wearing their clothes. Um, and you know, there's, there's seamstresses, so they're making clothes as well, but they can't wear those clothes. They can't afford to wear the outfits that they make. And so there's um, so much of like 
this Victorian message that you want to help people help themselves, that very liberal idea, right? Um, uh, rests on clothing. You have to inhabit their space to figure out what they need and you can't inhabit their space unless they're wearing their clothing. And then by putting on their clothing, you can sort of take on their bodies, both because you can think of yourself and how that affects you, but also because everyone else is now going to sort of read your body, um, both semiotically and affectively as a worker's body. So uh, this main character, by wearing the seamstress's clothing, sort of comes to understand what they need. And then she tries at one point, this is like my favorite part, she tries to like dress up her sister um, to get a better job and uh, what ends up happening is that she loses her job because she's suddenly like above her position right um, and and this is the moment where the main character realizes oh it's not uh, you can't just put on new clothes and suddenly you're a new person it's all about body change and the sort of social connection around so um, whether it's on purpose or not Besant has this really dense complicated theory of clothing that's both semiotic and affective and about the sort of um, requirements for empathy and how clothes are a sort of second skin. So if we're talking about empathy as a thing that is between bodies, it's also kind of between clothes. Mm. Mm. Interesting. As, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the way in which you, you start to put, you put a uniform on or you put a suit on or a style of dress and you feel, the first time you do it, it feels like fancy dress. It feels ridiculous. Mm -hmm. the first time you yeah. put on a gi, first time you put on a suit to go to a wedding or something like that. Yeah. It feels ridiculous. But, but after a while it feels normal and it feels like you. And also people can't, they don't know that it's not you. It is you. It's like, so right. I, I remember I got a job, one of my first or second academic job, and I, I went for the interview and I had my suit on and I got the job. And then next, when I, you know, three months later, whenever I turned up on my first day of work and I was just wearing a t-shirt and, sure. and, yeah. and shortly after that, my new boss, my new head of department or head of school or whatever, she said, well, you had us all fooled, didn't you? And I was like, what? And she went, well, you turned up with a suit on. And I was like, well, it was an interview. <laughs> like, right, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's not actually my skin. It's just like, right. and now it's a hot summer's day. I'm not, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes you, you become it, you become these these things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I tie my, my obi better than I tie my shoes, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's much more who I am. Mm. So if we were to look around and find some of the writings of Peter Katz, where would be the best place? for us to go what 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 well if we're especially martial arts people i mean yeah where, yeah where, where, where would we go um my first article i think is like where i would say like start start there i don't have a ton of publications i'm pretty young yet um uh but in oh dear victorian literature and culture all the victorian journal there's like the journal of victorian culture victorian literature and culture the journal of victoria so they're all the same name yeah. but victorian literature and culture um, Staging the Streets is the name of the article, and that's my Bartitsu article. That was my um, my first publication. It has nothing to do with literature. It was just I found this weird feeling in my body while I was doing Aikido in a Kenpo uniform, and I was like, "What is up with this?" I was in a class on Victorian dress studies, mm -hmm. and then I found Bartitsu, and everything kind of came together. Um, so that's my that's, that's, that's my like core. Place martial arts right. and then what's next i mean what what's next what's the next thing we can look out for are you going to submit uh, something to martial arts studies or, or oh yes um so i've been i've been working uh finishing up my 
my monograph, which has nothing to do with martial arts, but is that Besant chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, my next, I would really like to get together, um, you know, after that conference, there were so many people who were talking about affect either on purpose or without using those words at least uh, I would really love to get together some sort of collection on martial arts and affect and um been working with uh Donovan Schaefer who's uh like he in my opinion is one of the the leading affect scholars in religion studies um he's the one who got me into Aikido in graduate school and and he and I have always threatened to joint write a book on martial arts and affect so I'm holding him to that um yeah thinking about the different ways that we um in my head i would love to organize it around different affects so here's your chapter on joy in the martial arts here's your chapter on anger in the martial arts uh, yeah yeah so that would be excellent that would be yeah. a brilliant collection definitely yeah. definitely definitely you gotta you gotta chase your dreams you gotta do that and then we can read yeah. it and it'll be fabulous <laughs> okay so peter we've talked for a long time so i'm gonna say um thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today it's been really interesting and uh, we'll have to talk again soon yeah thank you so much for having me it was really fun